Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, anti-Semitism. Back in 1996, Daniel Goldhagen unleashed a fury of controversy when he published the book Hitler's Willing Executioners. In that book, he argued that the Holocaust took place not because Germans were especially obedient to authority or because there were a few bad apples who came into power, but because an eliminationist prejudice against Jews was woven into the very fabric of German culture. His book hit a nerve. Critics said Goldhagen used overly broad generalizations to indict a nation. But that criticism didn't hurt the book's reception. It was a phenomenal success in Germany and around the world. Nearly 20 years later, Goldhagen has brought in his scope in a new work called The Devil That Never Dies, The Rise and Threat of Global Antisemitism. The book offers an in-depth look at antisemitism around the world, as the title suggests, and it argues that it's an almost pathological prejudice that spans centuries and cultures. And inasmuch, antisemitism is a unique and a uniquely destructive phenomenon. We've got Daniel Goldhagen with us today in the studio to talk about his book. Danny Goldhagen, welcome to Vox Tablet. I'm delighted to be here. Your book, The Devil That Never Dies, takes great pains to distinguish anti-Semitism from other sorts of prejudice. I wonder if you can briefly explain what makes it different from other forms of prejudice like racism or homophobia. Anti-Semitism has a singular history and a singular form today that ma- that makes it different from other prejudices. That's not to say that there aren't other terrible prejudices. There are, as we know, in the, in the, from our own history in our country. But these distinctions actually matter. There is no other prejudice that is as long-lasting, has taken as many forms, has been as fantastical, as divorced from reality with its charges against the people uh, who are the target of the prejudice, and which has indeed issued in the kind of violence that anti-Semitism has issued in historically, again and again, across Europe, country after country, city after city in the Middle Ages, in the Nazi period, the Holocaust, and today against Jews in Europe, and of course Israel is threatened by neighbors around it. Uh, And one of the distinctive features of anti-Semitism is that it metamorphoses itself to bring itself in harmony with the times. So while there's a fundamental prejudice, which can be called a foundational anti-Semitic paradigm, the way that animus towards Jews, that belief that Jews are different, noxious, dangerous, and that somehow their power has to be curtailed because otherwise they will harm other people, the foundational anti-Semitic paradigm takes on different forms in different eras, and now after a long history of 2,000 years, has morphed into what can be called global anti-Semitism, something fundamentally new and different in the history of prejudice. There's a concept that you put forward in the book that what agitates anti-Semitism isn't uh, per se Jews, but something that you call Jewness. What is that? What is Jewness? Well, the first thing that you need to know about prejudice, and this is true of all prejudice, is that prejudice has almost nothing to do with the people, the targets of the prejudice, the people who are hated or against whom there are negative or horrific beliefs. Prejudice is the property of the people who are prejudiced. It is what they believe. And in this case, what they believe about Jews, that is anti-Semites, is that there is an essence of Jews, which can be called Jewness, and that this is the quality that Jews bear that makes them noxious and ultimately evil and dangerous. How Jewness is conceived of by different peoples, by anti-Semites in Europe or by anti-Semites in the Middle East, can vary. But it is this 
essence of Jewness. It's not their Jewishness, their attachment to being Jews. It's not anything they do. It's some scene, it's some primordial essence that anti-Semites focus upon, which I think is best characterized by this term Jewness. So it's sort of like a platonic ideal of the quality of being a Jew. Right. Though ideal is, of course, a, a word that is, is, is somewhat unfortunate in this circumstance, but a platonic anti-ideal, why don't yeah. we call it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> the scope of your book is so broad. When I was reading it, it really felt to me like a taxonomy of anti-Semitism. I mean, you take great pains to chronicle instances of anti-Semitism across the millennia and across uh, cultures and religions. What compelled you to undertake such a vast uh, account? You know, it's interesting that you say that because I don't think of the book as uh, in that way, but, you know, you're your reader and that's <laughs> what you got out of it. Um, it it's not a country-by-country country tour or an era-by-era era historical journey where I, where, where I – show what the nature of anti-Semitism was here, there, and everywhere. I think of it more as an attempt to make sense of the overall character and scope of synthetic work about anti-Semitism today. And of course, in doing that, I discuss anti-Semitism in a lot of places. And so in the book, I'm much more interested in trying to understand what the nature of the global anti-Semitism is and how it relates to past forms than to give a long history or a sociological tour of the world today. And there are other such books, and they're very good, but I tried to write a different kind of book that I thought was would be adequate to the challenge of understanding this phenomenon, which is at once seems so familiar, but is actually quite strange and different. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that we have to step back, take a fresh look, see it for the first time in a sense, because when you do that, it looks very different from the kind of conventional things that people say or think or think they know about anti-Semitism, that is, if they're not steeped in the subject the way a professional student of anti-Semitism is. So what is this new global anti-Semitism? What are its forms and what makes it different and unique and virulent? Anti-Semitism has always had a domestic and international component uh, where the local Jews were deemed to be a threat and the Jews out there, international Jewry and so on, were just deemed to be a threat. But historically, it, the weight has always been on the local Jews. Polish anti-Semites were concerned with Jews living in Poland and German anti-Semites with Jews living in Germany and so on and so forth. What's happened today is that the balance has shifted from the local or the domestic to the international, where around the world, anti-Semites are mainly focused on Jews outside of their country, in Israel or in the United States, and look at what they understand to be Jewish power and Jewish malfeasance in those countries as being the principal threat, and not just to their own countries, but to humanity in general. So this is a radically different constellation for anti-Semitism. A second important feature is that global anti-Semitism has taken on, as the name suggests, a global cast. Anti-Semitism always takes on the idiom of its day and takes on the forms of its day. And while before there was a center-periphery relationship of anti-Semitism, it even had an address for a long time, which was the Vatican, um, and it was, started, it was centered in Christian Europe and spread outward, now it is all over the world, flows go in every direction, it can, there is really not a place it can't be found, and this is also in part due to digital technology, which we can discuss, which is very interesting and, and troubling in this matter. Finally, not finally, because there's really much, much more. I'm just giving some of the highlights or lowlights, depending on how you want to look at it. There is something today which has never existed before, not only with regard to anti-Semitism, but with regard to other prejudices, which is an international anti-Semitic alliance. You have an alliance of many, many countries around the world who actually have a foreign policy to promote anti-Semitism and 
promoted at home, promoted abroad, but an anti international anti-Semitic alliance against Israel principally, but also against Jews in general. And this has never existed for anti-Semitism or any other kind of prejudice. And so in that sense, it's also global. Let's get into Israel for a moment. I mean, there's really no way you can talk about anti-Semitism nowadays without Israel coming into the conversation. Where does Israel fit exactly in your uh, analysis? Well, one actually can talk about anti-Semitism without Israel coming squarely in the middle of uh, of the focus. How? Um, because there's an enormous amount of anti-Semitism outside of the outside of the Arab and Islamic world that is quite old-fashioned in the charges that are made against Jews. Uh, in Europe, for example, uh, there are we have surveys that show that an v- enormous number of Europeans, and this has not been brought out, an enormous number of Europeans, depending on the question asked, 100 million, 200 million, 250 million Europeans express classical anti-Semitic uh, sentiment and, hold, and make classic anti-Semitic accusations against Jews, such as that Jews have too much power in business, that they're all guilty for the death of Jesus, that they care only about their own, and so on and so forth. This, none of this has anything to do with Israel. So when you go to the issue of what is the relationship between anti-Israelism, that is an animus towards Israel, and anti-Semitism, which is somehow deemed not to include as animus towards Israel, but it really does, uh, you can parse out, you can separate the different anti-Semitic elements that we see before us and that we have a very good data on and show that there's a great deal of anti-Semitism that has nothing to do with Israel. There's a great deal of focus on Israel, which is also anti-Semitic, and we can talk about that. And there is, of course, an interaction between the two. Um, but those who would like to say that a- the anti-Semitism that you find in Europe and in the United States and elsewhere is somehow a product of the Arab-Israeli conflict, they are either they either don't know the data or just not telling the truth because they want to continue to spread anti-Israel venom without being charged, correctly charged, with anti-Semitism. In the book, uh, as I was reading it, I definitely got the impression that you draw a line uh, regarding how one can talk about Israel in a way that isn't anti-Semitic or that is anti-Semitic. For people who are supporters of Israel Zionists, but who are also critical of its policies towards the Palestinians, how can they engage uh, on the topic of Israel without uh, without facing the accusation that they are being self-hating or anti-Semitic? Well, the, the first thing that we have to do if we want to enter this discussion, what is, a, what is appropriate or legitimate and so on, is have a better sense of what constitutes prejudice, and in general, anti-Semitism in particular. And while it's notoriously hard to give a very succinct definition, except for people who don't like or hate Jews or say negative things or hold terrible beliefs about Jews, um, there are certain things that identify that identify prejudice. One of them is that there are fantastical charges, charges about the targeted group that have little or nothing to do with reality. And so, for example, in the case of Israel, it is said by more than 50% of Europeans that Israel is engaged in a war of extermination against the Palestinian people. Now, this is, of course, nonsense. Uh, in the last 10 years, the Palestinian population under, in the occupied territories has doubled, hardly a war of extermination. Whatever, however critical it wants to be of Israel's policies and of, and of the and Palestinians who have been killed, which are about, uh, the number is about 6,500 in the last 10 years. A lot of people, about, the Palestinians have killed about 1,000 Israelis, but nothing like a genocide. Mm-hmm. And so this is a fantastical notion. 
So that's one aspect of, that's one way you identify prejudice. A second way you identify prejudice is how tenaciously people hold on to views that are false, even when they're given countervailing information. And so if people may continue to maintain things about Israel that are, that are false, even when they're given the information, and this is true of a lot of journalists, a lot of people in the media, who actually know better. They have access to the information. They've been told again and again by lots of people who in newspapers, magazines, and books, on TV, whatever, presented truthful information, yet they continue to ignore reality. That's another sign of prejudice. Uh, a third sign of prejudice is if you reduce the complex, the complexity of human beings, whether they're Jews or African Americans or whatever, to this essential quality that you, that you deem to be what's important about them, which is their Jewness. So, you know, we, I, don't even know if you're, I don't even know if you're Jewish, but let's say you're Jewish, and I just see you always as a Jew instead of as a media person, as a woman, as a New Yorker, as someone who grew up somewhere and is an American and so on and so forth. You have lots of identities. But for people who are prejudiced, everything gets reduced to the essence which is that the attributed identity, you're, you're Jew or you're black or whatever, and that is deemed to be the source of your conduct. So there are other features that define, that identify prejudice, and when we talk about anti-Israel, or criticism of Israel when it crosses the line, it's when it, it's when it crosses into some of these territories. So you can say, for example, that I think Israel shouldn't be occupying uh, shouldn't be occupying the the West Bank and Gaza, and uh, and that the policies there are wrong or wrongly implemented, or whatever, and that's perfectly fine, of course. But if you go on to say that the reason they're doing it is because they want to exterminate the Palestinian people, um, that of course goes over the line. Or if you say Israel is the greatest lawbreaker or the worst country in the world, which again, very large numbers of Europeans, not to mention people in the Middle East not to mention people in this country, actually say. And by any measure of how you would assess a country, take Freedom House, which is, take Freedom House's scores on domestic, on political liberty, on, on civil rights and, and political rights, Israel is scored almost as well as the United States is. And that takes into account its actions in the West Bank and Gaza, and Gaza no longer they're there. Um, and this is quite different from many of the countries in the world, including in the region, that have terrible, terrible scores. Israel is by no means the worst country in the world. So if you make these kinds of claims, you can, if you say Israel is like no other country in its law-breaking and its criminality, if you see it as criminality, then you are expressing prejudice and not a reasoned, legitimate criticism. So there are ways to assess this, and everyone should be on guard because there's so much in the media and so much in the public sphere that actually presents us wrong information. So mm-hmm. it is hard to, to, to keep things straight, even if you, unless you're a professional following this. Uh, but the, but the, these are some of the things that we should keep in mind. I want to go back to something you said. You mentioned uh, the Catholic Church and the Vatican. Uh, and in the book, you, you outline that, that one of the foundational principles of Christianity is that uh, the Jews killed Christ, which is a misapprehension of what actually happened. Uh, and then you argue that these ideas made their way into Islam or were, were adopted into Islamic theology. So then are we to conclude that as long as these two faiths endure, and it seems like they're not going anywhere, anti-Semitism will exist? Um, there's a whole discussion to be had about how anti-Semitism has become part of the substructure prejudice of the world, and that's part of its globalization. Um, and how different streams of anti-Semitism have come together 
to overlap and influence one another and, in fact, reinforce one another. So while in the Middle Ages or even in the modern period in the 20th century, Christian anti-Semitism and Muslim anti-Semitism, they, there was some overlap, but they were essentially different and separate, and they didn't have much to do with each other. And this was true about leftist anti-Semitism as well. Now there's mutual influence and reinforcement of one to another, and that's a, a new feature of this horrifying phenomenon. Uh, nevertheless, one can say certain things about the enduring anti-Semitism that each of these religions, or at least we, we don't have to talk about their religions, but those who practice and who preach certain things about f- grounded, as they understand it, in these religions put forward. Christian anti-Semitism uh, is actually on the decline, even though there's still a lot of it. And it's on the decline because the Catholic Church has taken great pains to try to do something about all the anti-Semitism that spread. And with Vatican II in the 1960s, it lifted the intergenerational curse on Jews and said that Jews for all time are not to be held guilty for the death of Jesus. And they've done other things. And there's still a great deal left to do, and there's been some backsliding in the last decade or so. But still, progress has been made. And there's been no time in human history where, except for perhaps at the dawn of Christianity, when when a smaller percentage of Christians have been anti-Semitic than today. So there's progress there, and we should point to that progress, and progress in our own country. Anti-Semitism has declined enormously in the United States as hopeful signs and as historical and contemporary aspects of the world to look at in order to learn from about how we can reduce anti-Semitism. The trajectory in the, in the Islamic world is quite different where anti-Semitism was important but not as central to early Islam and medieval Islam and even early modern Islam as it was to Christianity, where it was utterly central. In the 20th century, to a great extent owing to the to Israel's establishment and the Arab-Israeli conflict, it has become enormously stoked and the flames have been have been burning and they would burn in lots of different ways. You can take the metaphor in lots of ways and they'd probably all be correct. Um, and so Muslim or Islamic anti-Semitism is more intense, more widespread, more upfront in the cultures and countries uh, of Islamic peoples. Not all Muslims, I should add quickly, are anti-Semitic. Of and yeah. we, you know, we know this, and each individual's beliefs and actions have to be uh, accounted for in, their, for in themselves. But it is now so central to Islamic practice in many countries, not in all countries, but in many countries in the Middle East in particular, that that it is beyond very worrisome, and it's actually hard to see how, what you can do about it there. It's so, it's anti-deprecation of Jews, animus towards Jews, calling for the death of Jews is almost as central to Islamic preaching and practice today as classical Islamic tenets are that have nothing to do with Jews. Hmm. One interesting argument that you make in the book has to do with the extent to which we've come to accept a certain level of anti-Semitism as just natural uh, and that it leads to a kind of complacency. I wonder if you can give some examples of that. We have become so habituated to anti-Semitism that we don't even recognize it for what it is. Who's we? Virtually everybody. Jews and non-Jews alike. Jews and non-Jews. So in this this discussion of whether uh, someone should be called anti-Semite, because anti-Semites often say, you can't play the anti-Semitism card. It's a way to inoculate themselves against the charges. Um, The standard for anti-Semitism 
unspoken but but clear is that if the person doesn't have hatred in his or her heart and doesn't express out-and-out hatred for Jews, then it's not anti-Semitism. Now, we don't use that standard for any other prejudice. If someone says blacks are lazy or blacks are stupid and has no hatred for them but just thinks that this happens to be true, as many people do, we say that person's a racist, that person's prejudiced. But when when people make analogous kinds of allegedly factual statements which are wrong and which are prejudicial statements about Jews, it doesn't count as prejudice for many people. Like what kind of statements? Such as everything from everything from Jews have too much power. And if you actually step back, let's step around, what does that mean? Why, why do we see the people who have so-called power as being Jews in the first place, not Americans or not Brits or not whatever? What do they do too much? What are they doing with it? I mean, think of what's in this statement. What are they doing with such power? Controlling that, the banks. <laughs> well, I mean, what, why is them having power? If they have too much, it's because you're already saying that they're dangerous or they're, they're, they have some nefarious purpose or they're doing harm. Right. And so, or Jews, for example, I mean, in this country, you know, Jews have too much power in Washington. Jews are pulling the strings. Well, if you say Jews are pulling the strings of power behind the scenes... If you don't say, and I hate Jews, and they say, then they say, it's not anti-Semitism. But of course, this is a classical anti-Semitic trope, pulling strings, controlling governments, and so on behind the scenes. And so if you say this, if you, if you say these kinds of things in the U.S., many will say, it's not anti-Semitic, it's just, it's just true. But of course, it's just nonsense. Well, what about when Jews say uh, something that they see of it's positive? I mean, I so often come across this kind of boast. Jews are so smart. Look how disproportionately they've won Nobel Prizes. Is that also trafficking in anti-Semitism? We have to keep our eye on the ball. And anti-Semitism is a huge problem in the world. Jews are basically not safe anywhere in Europe. You walk on the street as a Jew, meaning you have a kippah on or a Star of David or some other symbol of your Jewishness, you're subject to being physically attacked. Most In most countries, Jews no longer will display their public identity. Their institutions are fortresses. With Under police protection in many countries, they're like bunkers because they can be attacked anytime and they are attacked. Jews are fleeing Europe in droves because it's simply too dangerous. The future for Jews in Europe may not be very bright. In 20 years, there may be just a remnant of the Jewish community in Europe if current trends continue. In much of the Arab and Islamic world, it's, it's a Nazi-like world. Jew-free, Judenrein, there are no Jews anymore. Uh, even in a country like Canada, which is relatively good compared to Europe, Jews are subject to attack. They're under enormous pressure. It's not like the U.S. The U.S. is a great exception to this. So anti-Semitism is a huge problem. Jews have also, I want to say, it's worth saying, been attacked historically again and again. If Jews want to take a little bit of solace in their in their cultural achievements, and even as many people do, as many people do feel proud and even boastful about what other people who share their identity have done, that's fine. That's not an issue. If someone says, look how many people from Mississippi or Germany or China have achieved this and the other thing. If they're those, then you, we say fine. But often when Jews do it, it's held against them in a way it's not held against other people, which is also another manifestation of prejudice. Well, then how do we fight it? We fight it the way we've been fighting it 
for a long time. One of the positive things about anti-Semitism is that it has declined enormously in the United States since the 1960s. And it's declined because there's been an anti-anti-Semitic ethos in this country that has combated anti-Semitism. We have gradually developed, and now it's in place, a compact whereby anti-Semitism is not allowed in the public sphere in its classical forms, and particularly political leaders or opinion leaders who express anti-Semitism are deemed immediately not fit for public life. This is absolutely crucial because if you keep prejudice, in this case anti-Semitism, out of the public sphere, people don't get their existing prejudicial beliefs reinforced, deepened, and young people in particular, or other people who are not anti-Semitic, aren't reared in anti-Semitic or prejudicial cultures and don't become prejudiced or anti-Semitic. And that's the reason there's been so much success in this country. The problem is that the public spheres of many other countries are totally poisoned. You have in the Arab and Islamic world people, political leaders, and this is one of the characteristics that, that makes anti-Semitism different from other prejudices, Political leaders routinely making dehumanizing and demonizing statements about Jews. Jews are the children of apes and pigs. Jews have are, have a whole litany of crimes on their on uh, on their ledger, and regularly calling for their extermination. Is there another group of people against whom calls for extermination are regularly made, not just by some crackpot, but by political leaders of political movements of governments and are routinely made by the highest religious leaders of different countries? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Right. It's only about Jews. So the public sphere in Arab countries and Islamic countries, not all, but are, are totally poisoned, and you have very little capacity to influence them from abroad. And the public spheres of European societies, while not like that of Middle Eastern countries, is also quite poisoned with a fair amount of anti-Semitism, often cloaked, often taking anti-Israel form, but saying such things such as Jews, or rather Israelis, the Jews in Israel, are undertaking an exterminatory program against Palestinians. Although you do have European countries in which Jews are in positions of leadership and could potentially affect greater change. I mean, France, for instance, with Nicolas Sarkozy. The Jewish communities of European countries are not the self-confident uh, community that we have in the United States, where Jews actually assert in good democratic fashion, just as other groups do, their rights and their and say we need to defend ourselves and make alliances to do so. In many countries, the the communities are rather timid. They're under assault. They're diminishing. They don't know quite what to do. There's enormous hostility against them. Occasionally, you'll have a prominent Jew make it to some prominent position in politics or there are or in and there are Jews who are successful in a wide range of, of fields um, but they tend to keep their heads low as Jews uh, and they and and in any case the capacity of a lone warrior in this respect to do very much is not great you need to have a, a consensus among the elites of countries that anti-semitism is a poison and it's a poison that should not be allowed not only to infect the public sphere, not only to target Jews, but to infect and corrode the minds of non-Jews, of the of people who 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 are potential anti-Semites or who are already anti-Semites, because it does them harm to have fantastical views of the world and to have hatred for people just because they happen to have the word Jew attached to their name or their identity. There are so many pressing things that we have to worry about 
gun violence, violence against women, violence against gays, climate change. Why should anti-Semitism be the thing that we need to worry about foremost? I never said it, it needs to be. We do a lot of different things. So I, I'm concerned about global warming, and I am, in, I am concerned and pay attention to a lot of things like writing about Sudan today and, and many other things. Uh, but it's, it's, it's on the menu of important things. Understanding the real nature of global anti-Semitism and the real danger, which is as acute as it could be, is important. If you have a false view of the of the nature of anti-Semitism in the world today, a false view being that it's not that big of a problem, then you are not able to act both in your own interests or in your family or community's interests, but also in the interest of humanity, because it's not in the interest of humanity for a group of people to be the obsessive focus of hatred and to be subject, perhaps, to being killed again. So uh, so American Jews, and not just American Jews, but not Americans who are not Jewish, just as Americans, whether they are African-American or not African-American, should be concerned with prejudice. It is dangerous for us all, and not just the targeted groups, though it is most dangerous for those who are being targeted. Daniel Goldhagen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Daniel Goldhagen is the author of The Devil That Never Dies, The Rise and Threat of Global Antisemitism. It's out next week from Little Brown. We'd love your thoughts on this conversation. Please post a comment on our website, tabletmag.com, or go to Facebook and join the conversation there. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We thank you so much for joining us.